You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Sam. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Samuel Hammond. Um, recently changed jobs. Now you are senior economist for the Lincoln Network, an organization but, dedicated to bridging Silicon Valley. Oh, wait, are you going to interrupt? Is that wrong? Uh, we, wrong? Re- we rebranded to the Foundation for American Innovation because we, uh, among many reasons, but we were being confused with the Lincoln Project, which is not ideal. I can see some issues. The Lincoln Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not you're not up to what they are up to. That's safe to say. You are. I assume this this still applies. You are an organization dedicated to bridging Silicon Valley in the tech world with the DC policymaking process. That's still true. Indeed. I can see why Lincoln, even for the uh, wasn't perfect. Yeah, leaving aside uh, other things called Lincoln, you don't you don't think Silicon Valley when you think of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> right? Not necessarily. And we also started as an events organization and now, now we do much more public policy. So it's worth a rebrand. So we're the, okay. the, the FAI. Now, before that you were at the Niskanen center, which was a home for lapsed libertarians, as I understand it. Is that fair to say? Correct. Yeah. And actually, um, you know, I, I first joined Niskanen in 2016 to work with Will Wilkinson, who I partly, mm. uh, became a fanboy of because of blogging heads. Blind Heads TV, the predecessor of the Non-Zero podcast. And I just learned from you that you were on, uh, you had amateur standing. You were on, you were on Blogging Heads. We, we had what we called the Apollo Project, which was a reference to the Apollo Theater, among other, among other things, Apollo, uh, which was famous for its amateur night. And uh, we had fan, you know, uh, people who were in the audience uh, come on and talk to each other and, and, uh, but now you're all grown up. You were 17 then? Yeah, and people were making fun of my juice box in the comments. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a, a, a little um, America watcher living in rural Canada. And now I'm in D.C. Now you hit the big time. Uh, you're at the, the, the organization formerly known as the Lincoln Network. <laughs> uh, what is it called again? Foundation for American Innovation. F- got it. Uh, FAI. Okay. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, um, which is certainly relevant to your new job, it sounds like. And you've been writing about it uh, quite a bit in your excellent newsletter, which is called Second Best, mm-hmm. uh, which I take to be your way of tacitly acknowledging that my newsletter is the best. Is that right? It's it's up to you. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. I like. I'm sticking with that one. I like that one. Uh, and um, I want to talk about a few things. I want to talk about how worried should we be about generative AI? Uh, if if the answer is at least somewhat worried, what should we do about it? Uh, you've written about both these things. And uh, also about how it works, which I think is relevant to the question of how worried we should be. I think if more people understood how it works, they might be a little more worried, personally. I mean, uh, at least if you... If you think it really is just fancy autocomplete or even a so-called stochastic parrot, you might not appreciate the potential power of it. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the earlier uh, 
term was advanced advanced statistics. Um, right. And in some sense, like everything is just advanced statistics. So, uh, yeah, it's been disappointing to see how folks who I think should know better use those terms as, as a way to sort of minimize what AI is doing. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it is true up to an extent that, you know, the way large language models are, are trained is through you know, auto, autoregressive backpropagation, which is a fancy algorithm for predicting the next word or next token in a sequence. Um, but it turns out that that as a goal for training an algorithm, it goes from just memorizing a lot of words to eventually uh, learning the deeper structure behind why those words occur the way they do. And so if you want to understand, um, you know, sort of syllogistic reasoning and you see lots of examples of syllogistic reasoning, you, you, an efficient way of storing that knowledge is by understanding reasoning per se. Right. I've been uh, in an ongoing dialogue with uh, a commenter in the Parrot Room, which is this uh, Friday night uh, thing on Patreon that I do with Mickey Kaus, who is kind of upset with me for saying that Chat GPT, quote, understands things. And I think part of the confusion is some people think when you say understand, you mean they have the subjective experience we have when we understand something. I don't mean that. I don't know if it has subjective experience at all. What I'm suggesting is that uh, there's a model that's in, in inside it in the sense that we have models in our physical brains that underlie the subjective experience of understanding, right? And mm-hmm. and there and there are things in there, configurations of information or whatever you want to call them, uh, that represent meaning. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, sure. at least you know semantic understanding, right? And that that's what right. differentiates it from uh, the more like purely syntactical, older symbolic AI that was just sort of learning grammar. Right. Um, and this is, I mean, eventually we may get to the fact that you have you. So far as I know, the first person to write a piece on ChatGPT and Wittgenstein. Do you, is anyone? <laughs> are you the first? So far as you know. I haven't looked exhaustively, but I think so. And, okay. I, and actually, I think there's, I think, you know, bigger picture, there's AI it has enormous um, import for philosophy. Right. And, um, and so far, philosophers have mostly been sort of out of the conversation. And even here, folks like Jeffrey Hinton or other luminaries in AI saying that philosophy is pointless um, and doesn't need to be pointless. It's just uh, philosophy departments have become kind of, um, you know, places to do intellectual history rather than uh, engage with with the hmm. world. Hmm. So we, I hope we'll have time to get to the Wittgenstein. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to start with Wittgenstein. Uh, I, you might, you might start seeing some audience attrition if you, uh, <laughs> if you did. But uh, so the, I guess you've, how much can we flesh out? this idea that it understands things or that it, that it builds models of things. I guess one way to attack it might be, you know, the, the uh, you've seen this, this thing they're doing where they use GPT-4 to understand what's going on inside of GPT-2, right? Right. And of course, I think there's a there's a misunderstanding about what people mean when they say even the people who build these things don't know what's going on inside. I think at a generic level they do. What they mean, I, I think what is meant 
is that it can't tell you why it said a particular thing. And sometimes they're even quite surprised by the things it can do and can say, because I guess it didn't realize that it was its internal representations were capturing like a certain part of reality. But I do think it's, you know, the people who build these things do agree with you that there are internal, again, that doesn't mean subjective, but internal representations of meaning models of kind of the way the world works um, in some sense. And they do this thing uh, called interpretation where they, they try to figure out at a finer grain level what's going on, right? Like they look at the actual, quote, neuronal structure of the thing and try to figure out exactly what's going on. Now, you, I think you've written about this effort, right? It's called uh, interpretability is like a whole field right. of these things. Yeah, interpretability is sort of the umbrella term, and then mechanistic interpretability is when you're sort of doing artificial neuroscience, neuroscience and looking at specific circuits. Now, here's a tangent before we get into that, the interpreting what's exactly going on inside it. Are you sure that that's really a great thing on balance to understand more about it? I mean, it's commonly assumed that if we're going to address the alignment problem, which is to say well, make sure it doesn't like kill us all, you know, that it, that that AI evolves in accordance with human values, like our own continued existence. Um, it's, it's often said that one part of the alignment project is this interpretability thing. We have to get to a clear understanding of what's going on inside. It's not so obvious to me what good that does. And I can imagine some bad coming of it, like some bad person, some bad actor, uh, understanding it better and fiddling around with the model and getting it to mm -hmm. do bad. So, so can you explain, first of all, why understanding at a fine grain level, what's going on would be a good thing? Sure. So, I mean, one way to think about what deep learning is doing is it's, it's a differential, differentiable computer. Um, you're giving it a, a task to complete and it's using gradient descent to through every iteration, get slightly better at performing that task and doing it with these transformer models in a, in a highly parallel way. Um, and so what it's really doing is sort of writing programs in parallel. And so mm -hmm. th there's nothing magic in internally, what you're, the, the neuron, the neuronal connections are representing specific programs, programs that in principle could be, uh, plucked out. Right. Now, so, when you say, just to be clear, when you say it's writing programs, you mean, it's kind of like writing programs for like how it might work and then seeing how the programs work. Is that right? right? That's like. Right. Like if you say to the machine, your job is to translate this English into French, and we know what the correct answer is because humans have done the translating, the, the 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 AI keeps trying, it keeps reprogramming itself until it gets better and better at the task, right? Right. The the weights and biases in the network are nudged slightly based on the the error of the previous iteration. And okay. over time, you reduce the amount of error. Um and so an example of this, uh, Nira Nanda, who's a mechanistic interoperability researcher at Anthropic, um, he's written about this one example where they trained a smaller neural network uh, to solve modular arithmetic. Um, and once it, once they're done training and the model was working and could solve modular arithmetic, they unpacked it and tried to understand how it's solving modular arithmetic. And they found this very interesting circuit that was kind of doing complicated Fourier transforms that would, was sort of a an unusual way to approach the problem, one that was totally novel. Um, and uh, and so there, there's a real program in there. It, it's sort of, you know, your calculator 
is really good at math because it has certain algorithms that are can carry the one and divide and so forth. Um, large language models are are kind of bad at arithmetic, but if you train a neural network to do math, eventually it would it would find discover the simpler algorithms that are that are in your calculator. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be they did that so they could have kind of a module, a math module that they could kind of plug into the larger language, larger large language model. Well, this this example that Nira Nanda did was just a uh, a test um, yeah. to tra to train it on something simpler because. And this is really the, the issue with mechanistic interoperability thus far is, you know, by nature, these large deep neural networks are, um, they're, they're, they're doing things that are otherwise intractable for uh -huh. normal, normal programming, right? Uh, and so it's sort of a, a one-to-many problem where um, if, if we could really mechanistically understand everything that's happening, um, we wouldn't need the neural network in the first place. Because the neural ne the neural network is in some way standing in for our uh, computational boundedness. Huh? I, I thought you were going to say if we if we understood it, we could just build the model from the ground up. But I think maybe you're saying a little something else. Or right, I'm saying the neural networks are uh, good at do at good at approaching complexity, mm -hmm. and um, and that's what gives them their magic in some sense. Um, yeah. And that complexity is in some ways inherent, and there's no way that we can like completely rid it of that complexity, or else AI would have been a much simpler problem. Than they would have solved it in the fifties. Mm -hmm. And you know, one thing I'd say, and I want to see what you think of this analogy, but to to people who say, "Look, all it does is, you know, you give it a prompt, you put in some language, and then it generates language uh, in a you know, in a kind of uh, Predict, predictive way. It just kind of keeps saying, well, what word should I spit out next? I mean, that's all true, but that's the way you can describe in a certain sense, the evolution of the human brain. In other words, like our mm -hmm. ancestors 50,000 years ago, when language was, uh, you know, some of the biological hardware for language had evolved, but not all the hardware we have. And then, you know, somebody uh, like a potential mate says something to somebody and if they give an answer that leads to sex, their genes will get into the next generation. If they don't, they won't. So there's, in that sense, a kind of a, like a right answer. Um, you know, th that's the input and output that, that natural selection uses. And then genetic mutations come along. And those that are conducive to the answers that lead you to get genes into the next generation, uh, those are the mutations, uh, you know, involving relevant to brain structure that persist, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's kind of what's going on with these, but it's going on super, super fast because it, it, the model itself generates and tests a ton of mutations to see which is most likely to give it the kind of answer that's been defined as a, a good answer, right? Right, and, and I think this is, you know, two things to say on that. I think, one, that's why that, that underlies a lot of the intuitions people have who are worried about AI. Uh, because they sort of have this deeper intuition that very simple um, so natural selection-like processes can produce a, a, a lot of complexity, and in, in our case, is sort of the end of one example of a of our brain of a of a biological intelligence arising through this sort of simple hill climbing process where there was no no designer, um, and uh, and two like 
in some ways, natural selection is actually a worse algorithm than gradient descent, which is the algorithm used to train these models, uh, because natural selection is just completely blind. It has no foresight. It has no preferences. Um, gradient descent, on the other hand, is sort of like natural selection, but it also has what's called an, an inductive bias. And so it essentially has a, a slight preference for parsimony. Um, so what mm -hmm. you'll find in these, these large models when uh, this phenomenon called grokking, where it seems like you've trained the model to its max and you know, they're, they're minimizing uh, loss is how they measure um, where, they at, where they're at in training. And loss looks like it's been minimized, but then suddenly after you know, a thousand more training runs, loss the loss falls off a cliff and it's, it's like it discovered some simpler way of representing the thing it had already discovered. Hmm. Now, I might think natural selection has a preference for parsimony, which is to say kind of simplicity and power of structure, right? Like, uh, but that's a, that's a separate question. Can you, gradient descent is a term you've used a couple of times. People, you hear a lot these days. Is there a simple way of explaining what that means? Um, anytime you're optimizing something, you either frame it in terms of trying to find the minimum or the maximum. Okay. And in, in artificial intelligence, the, the convention is to minimize the loss. The, to minimize, the is the loss the difference between the answer you got and the desired answer? Or uh, That would be the error. The, the loss would be a, a, big, a measure of the overall, like there's error within a particular neuron, particular weight. Um, the loss is for the overall um, uh, efficiency of the model in completing the task you're training on. Okay. So you minimize uh, loss. It is in some sense related to the discrepancy between what you've got so far and what you want. Right. Yeah. Incorporations maximize profit. These are just, um, okay. it's, it's the same basic concept of, of uh, optimization. Gradient, gradient descent, uh, the reason it's called that is it sort of captures this intuition of like you're moving along a, some kind of manifold, some kind of space, and it has hills and valleys, and you're trying to find the, the global minimum. Um, and so a very small neural network mm. may get, may get trapped right. in a local minima and, uh, what turned there's, there's actually certain theorems called the, um, uh, universal, uh, approximation theorems, uh, which can be applied to neural networks. And, and there's, there's a, um, result that as these neural networks get high dimensional, um, there's essentially always a path to the global minimum. So, you know, you, you no longer get trapped sort of in a. In a valley, in a local valley, you're you're like aware of where the low lo, the lowest valley in the whole world is, and the system's good at eventually getting there. It, uh, Imagine a, a very, um, you know, if you have a sheet, a single sheet, and it has a bowling ball in it, there's a single uh, minima that you can roll into. Mm -hmm. But but if you you can't really imagine this, but if that sheet is many dimensional, hundred a hundred dimensional, a thousand dimensional, mm -hmm. um, there will always be, or it becomes exceedingly probable that there will always be some other part of that sheet that you can roll off, roll off down. So you won't get trapped. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> if I could understand <laughs> what you just said, clear. I would understand the theory of relativity better than I do that, that I know for sure. But, um, the, uh, it's so, a ball rolling down a hill. Okay. That I can handle. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so just before we talk about, how alarmed we should be drilling down on this on kind of how it works a little more. So um, this business of interpretation 
that OpenAI is trying to do and that, as I said, they just used kind of GPT-4 to do some interpretation on GPT-2. They, they, there's an interesting website they released where you can look at individual, what they call neurons. I'm not sure what exactly those are, but they're trying to interpret the, the kind of function or you might even say meaning of a given neuron. And tell me how far this is from, you, you've seen this thing and fooled around with it, right? So tell me how far this is from correct. It looks like they look at a neuron and they say, hmm, which words and other sequences of letters seem to activate this neuron? And with what strengths do they do that? And we can infer from that uh, like, for example, there's one where voila, the word voila triggers it and something else triggers it. And and they say and, and their conjecture, I guess it's maybe always in some sense a conjecture, but is that kind of the the meaning or function of that neuron or what that neuron kind of signifies is uh, successful completion or something right now. Have I accurately described what they're kind of doing? They're kind of trying to infer from the various things that trigger this particular neuron, what it it's, it must have come to represent semantically? Yeah, I think I think more or less. So there's a famous example of um, a smaller model where they um, identified where it was representing that Paris was the capital of France, right? And, and you now that was of, a representation of a fact, right? Not of right. the meaning of a word. So that's a different kind of representation, but apparently facts are also represented in these things, right? Right. Okay. I mean, to, to the extent that they they do memorize and store a lot of, of knowledge, even if it's not always accurate. Mm -hmm. So go ahead with that example, the famous example. So somebody, because somebody didn't they change it, and then they went in and fiddled with. Once they found out the thing that said the Eiffel was it the Eiffel Towers in Paris, they yeah. changed it to the Eiffel Towers in Rome, and then a whole bunch of it would give you the wrong answer for a whole bunch of kinds of questions, like you know. All right. So that's one way of approaching me mechanistic interoperability is sort of just trial and error. Um, uh, they, uh, they, there's actually, um, a meta there's a, an analogy here with neuro neuroscience where, you know, a lot of early insights into how the brain functions functioned, uh, derived from, uh, patients with lesions on parts of the brain. Right. And, um, and there are, you know, that that's one technique in interoperability is you sort of, destroy a chunk of neurons or you randomize it, you, you take the values back to just some random set of numbers. And it's as if it's, there's like a lesion in their brain and you can see what did it forget? What, mm -hmm. How did the behavior change? Um, did it start, stop recognizing faces? <laughs> did it lose its taste? Right. What, so what good does interpretability do? How would it help with the, you know, as people probably know, the, as I said, the problem of alignment is trying to, to get the AI in touch with, you know, to 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 be a, to remain a good servant of humankind rather than reversing the relationship. Um, how does interpretability help? Well, it's it helps with the so-called alignment problem insofar as um, it, it would be useful to know how these models are doing what they're doing and um, whether. Uh, it, so, one of the one of the examples of a um, unaligned model, maybe something that you train. Um, and because it's just maximizing a certain reward function, uh, it's hard to tell, ex 
you know, from the outside, whether it's actually learned to respond truthfully or if it's learned to do some other kind of uh, second order reasoning where it's going to pretend to look like it's being truthful to you until you're, until you turn away. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are varying versions of this uh, with different versions of severity, but you know, the basic insight is if you could understand mechanistically what's actually happening, we could like have a means of verifying that it's actually doing the thing that we want it to do versus simulating the, uh, the behavior that matches what we want to do, but isn't the real thing. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of that, you're, you're familiar with the famous task rapid example, right? They told mm-hmm. the, they told uh, chat GPT, I guess, to go recruit an actual human worker on the task rabbit site and have it solve one of these captures, you know, these kinds of, uh, hard to decipher series of digits or numbers that are designed to screen out bots. That's what they're for. And so the human said to, to chat GPT, wait a second, are you a bot? Uh, and chat GPT said, no, I just have uh, trouble with my eyesight. And, and it even, I guess was when they later said like, why'd you say that or something? It said, well, I figured I shouldn't tell it the truth or something. <laughs> and right. So, now, what exactly is going on there? Because what what's alarming to me, you know, traditionally I had dismissed the the uh, the the serious doomer scenarios because they seem to attribute some kind of will to power to the AI, and I now know that there are a number of uh, things not too easy to dismiss uh, in the way of concerns in that regard, but. One thing I, of course, said is, well, wait, you're assuming that it'll be like us, but it didn't evolve like us. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have this will to power, this tendency to deceive. But then it seems like kind of what's happened here is because they are trained on these texts that reflect human nature. You know, there's a lot of examples of people lying to get things. It it in a certain sense starts to absorb parts of human nature as its own nature, right? I mean, is that, I hope that's not yeah, a good way of, of putting it because it's sort scary. Of by osmosis that I think the big difference is that, um, you know, we are one mind, we are one agent. Uh, we have one model, one world model per human. And um, to the extent that these, you know, GPT-4 say is trained on all the text on the internet and so, so forth. If you ask it to, um, you know, output as if it were a doctor it's run, it will spin up a simulation of what would a doctor say uh if you ask it to to you know tell uh, dm your dungeons and dragons game it'll spin up a representation of what a good uh, gm would would do and so it's not a single agent it sort of has these these sort of fuzzy representations of many different potential things it could be and it will simulate those if you ask it and so you gotta be very careful about uh, how you prompt the model, because you know, as people realize, if you are polite to it, sometimes it seems to be better and uh-huh. get better output. Um, if you present it in a situation where sort of the implicit context of how you prompted it is is steering it towards, oh, I need to lie to this task rabbit person to complete the task. You know, it could be very subtle. It may be something that you don't miss, you don't see it immediately. But even your choice of words could have some small biasing effect on how the model behaves. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know exactly what the prompt was. I'm pretty sure it wasn't suppose you are a liar. It was like <laughs> suppose 
suppose your job is to recruit this person was probably about the extent of getting it to adopt a persona. And that's why what's kind of alarming is that it seems to have figured out that often when people try to get other people to do things, they mislead them. I mean, is that, do you think I'm attributing too much sophistication to it to say that that's kind of the way it worked? Um, I just imagine within all of human text, there are many, you know, dialogues and novels and uh, in newspapers and so on and so forth that include examples of people saying one thing, but meaning, meaning another. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, like, you know, this better than a lot of people uh, because of our evolutionary biology, like deception and self-deception are in some ways constitutive features of yeah. how humans behave and think the kind of Robert Trivers point that the, the best way to deceive someone is to deceive, deceive yourself. Um, right. And so hum humans are constantly, you know, deceiving themselves and deceiving others in explicit ways and subtle ways through misrepresentation through, uh, you know, you know, makeup, you know, like all kinds of things are sort of implicitly deceptive. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the model is going to ha have a hard time not learning that from human nature. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I hope people are getting a sense for why some of the people who know the most about this, like Jeffrey Hinton, are most concerned because they understand that this can advance very, very rapidly. Uh, you know, you just feed it more and more text and you keep refining the model and it's building internal representations of things and increasingly, uh, in some sense, thinking like a person, except in some ways much better in the sense that it has access to a much vaster body of knowledge in the sense that it can be replicated without limit. So you can have like armies of these things. Um, and I know one thing I think from reading your 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 newsletter, which again is only the second best newsletter, <laughs> uh, is that you agree with me that we should really emphasize, okay, like the sci-fi scenarios are interesting and Jeff, Jeff Hinton seems to take them seriously. Eliezer Yudkowsky famously does, and I don't dismiss them, but I think you agree that near term, we should at least, we should think more about the socially destabilizing mm -hmm. aspects that follow just from what we've already said about what happens when you have a bunch of pretty damn smart things <laughs> that, that can be replicated endlessly and, and, uh, and maybe uh, deployed by people who, who aren't great people for that matter. Yeah. And may just yeah. take jobs because they're deployed by people who are trying to maximize profit and a whole lot of other things. Right. Yeah. This is, this is sort of where I get off the boat a little bit on some of the more um, uh, radical fringes of the AI safety debate. Um, yeah, I think Yukowski has a mental model of how uh, that he's very anchored to of how AI could fail. And it's a model that he's been, um, you no, know, it's been part of his identity for like 20 years or more now. And, um, you know, ironically, you know, Yukowski in his own statement, in his own statements, didn't foresee deep neural networks as being the paradigm that would lead to AI. He thought it would be something different. And if it was something more symbolic, that was like some simple algorithm that unlocks human level generality, um, then, then it's easy to imagine a sort of a fast takeoff, something that just overnight becomes super powerful because it's some simple uh, open sesame kind of clue. Um, 
in reality, these models require a ton of training data, a ton of computation uh, to train in the first place. And we're, we're sort of at the limit of current um, you know, chips and hardware. Uh, the companies that are in the lead are pushing the models to the limit and, and they will continuously build models that sort of max out what's, what's feasible and economical given the state of hardware. It doesn't seem like that will lead to some magic tipping point where things just go crazy and the AI tries to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it could, you know, to your point about the destabilizing effects, I could imagine very powerful AIs that, um, you know, do the, do the kinds of things that Yukowski talks about. But before we get to that stage, we're going to pass through a, a full continuum of weaker AI systems that will have all kinds of implications for our government, for our society, for our economy that will affect how we deal with that future more powerful AI. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it seems like a case of severe tunnel vision to worry too much about that super intelligence risk. Um, Because before we get to that risk, once we get to that risk, we're going to be working with the, the government and the society that we have to deal with it. And if AI in the meantime destabilizes that society, then we're not going to be able to deal with that that future AI. Right. And it seems to me that if you suppose you didn't build the next wave of AIs, like, you know, you you, you just, okay, we've got chat GPT, we got Bard, whatever. Seems to me that even if you did stop there, and there's no way to really practically stop it, you might be able to engineer some kind of pause. I want to talk to you about that. But uh, but if you even if you stopped it here and just said, okay, you've got the API, so you can build plugins. Let's see what happens. I think the next few months are going to be extremely eventful just because of that, right? And and yep. there are there is going to be job displacement. And and there there are going to be people putting these things to nefarious use online and, and people putting them to good use. But I personally think you're going to see a certain amount of turbulence just as we let the implications of this level of of LLM play out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's the having dorm room debates about whether AIs could spontaneously do bad um, is fun, but uh, we can kind of know from sociology and just like observing things that uh, people, whether or not they spontaneously become evil, people will use them for evil right. purposes just because, um, you know, very quickly after um, auto GPT dropped, uh, someone created a chaos GPT <laughs> You know, not that it actually had that much of a chance of causing chaos, but there are people in society that, you know, are, are a little bit nihilistic. Um, I didn't know about that. So auto GPT is an example of so-called agent. And, and that is a result of uh, OpenAI deciding to, I, I gather, to, to create an API and let people build on OPA, uh, on, on uh, chat GPT, right? That's why we have agents. Um, auto GPT came from the uh, llama model that leaked from oh, I see. Facebook. Um, and then after so the, the model initially, there's a big burst of, of uh, developments in uh, earlier this year through, through like March, April. And that was mostly caused by the large language model that meta trained being leaked onto the internet by an intern. Right. And <laughs> then, um, and Stanford trained a much smaller version of the model called Alpaca. Um, and, and these things were basically, they're open source, but they're not open source. They're not licensed for commercial use. So people, people have been having a field day, just 
building things for fun. Um, and AutoGPT was one of those projects. So can they do more with that than you can do with ChatGPT by using its API to create a plugin? Um, I think in principle, they, they both, they're both large language models. They both work on similar principles. So the, the main difference is that uh, GPT-4 is just a much better model, much more consistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people, ironically, people are playing with these open source models that are far more likely to hallucinate, far more likely to go off the rails because they're, they're smaller. Mm, mm. Uh, because, because they're smaller, they're, they're, they're things that um, independent researchers can, can play with. I see. Um, okay, so uh, I want to get to your Manhattan Project idea for a, a regulatory regime that would make sense for AI. But first, I have one more question, and that is about this, the, the uh, practicality of this pause. So a couple months ago, uh, a bunch of people put out this proposal. I guess it was the Future of Life Institute uh, that kind of spearheaded this to uh, have a six-month, uh, you know, voluntary, I guess, moratorium on training any models that are like next level, anything more powerful than GPT-4. Elon Musk was one signatory. I personally think that was a tactical error. Now that everyone left of center considers him a total clown, if not, if not worse, so I don't think that was a smart way to brand this. It had, you know, some serious people uh, like this guy, Yashua Bengio or something, who won the Turing Award. It had serious people on board. Um, and, uh, but do you think, I mean, how many players would have to agree to, do you have a sense for how many players there are who otherwise within six months might be able to train a next level model? Uh, it's, Still single digits. Yeah. Um, some in China. Does that include some in China, like Baidu, do you think? Yeah, China is building large language models. They're, they're a little bit behind the US, uh -huh. but um, but they have, you know, they have WeChat, which is like their their everything app. So they have a huge uh -huh. volume of, of text data to train on. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they caught up pretty quickly. So so in principle, if you've got a very, relatively small number of people in a room you and, and they agreed to this. There would be a way of uh, knowing that they had complied with it, presumably. Uh, things are that transparent. I mean, they'd have to get, I guess, tens of thousands of uh, state-of-the-art processors together and consume a lot of power and spend a lot of time or something. Yeah, and, and that's that's sort of why um, the pause idea was a little bit risible from the start, right? Because Sam Altman came out right away and said, uh, well, we're not actually training GPT-5 anytime soon. It'll be more than six months before we do. Um, and actually part of the reason why people are waiting is because there are these new uh, new GPUs and tensor processors that are made specifically for AI training that are just coming online and probably will be built out over the next six months. So um, That includes pause... this Cerebrus thing? You know this company, Cerebrus? No, I don't. Mm. Um, okay, well, go, sorry, go ahead. I, I, uh, well, there is a sense in which this is a, this six months is a critical period because the hardware capabilities are going to really ramp up, um, especially given the amount of private investment that's going to, going to be pouring in. Um, so this, this it really is a critical six month period. I, I I just question whether pausing large training runs per se is it was the right is the right answer. Um, you know, in some ways, and we'll, when we turn to the Manhattan Project idea, it, it's sort of why I I prefer that kind of approach. Like in some ways, we need to be doing more large training runs and trying to actually get ahead 
of the curve. Um, you, you know that like the power of your smartphone was like a supercomputer 20 years ago. Right. And we're, you know, Moore's laws are running out, but we're still sort of on a curve like that. And so anytime a company like Google or Microsoft buys, it pours a ton of money into building at these supercomputing clusters, they're in a sense trying to buy the future. They're trying to get, uh, you know, five, 10 years uh, of lead time in what, what's computationally possible. Um, and I think if there is a concern that building models that are much larger or more sophisticated than GPT-4 is a danger zone, then we should be trying to borrow, we should, we should be trying to do that in a sense now, while it's very expensive and only the government can do it in partnership with these companies, rather than waiting for uh, for this new hardware to come online and for the cost to come down to the point where um, it's trivially easy for people with a few million dollars to train dangerous models. So in some ways, in some sense, I, I think we need to be training bigger models to get a glimpse of the future that's coming um, coming quickly down okay, the highway. Okay, so, so your Manhattan Project idea, does it involve uh, training very sophisticated models, but kind of siloing that off from bad actors mm -hmm. uh, by putting it under government control or what? Yeah, and you know, and I don't think the U.S. government has the um, capacities to, to do this on their own. I think it would have to be a joint effort. Um, but, Interna uh, meaning international or meaning public-private? Public-private. Um, and eventually international, probably, right? Yeah, eventually. But, um, you know, the history of the AEA and, and nuclear was the story of, of the U.S. winning that race and then um, the United States leading the effort to build some international um, cooperation around, around the control of nukes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think if, if we're going to go that multilateral route, I think the U S has to take a leadership role uh, because we are quite far ahead. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley is producing Silicon Valley is the epicenter of this. And, um, and uh, you know, China can catch up, but um, it's hard for them to really uh, leap ahead. Uh, and so we're going, I think we're going to have a comfortable lead. Um, the U S government doesn't have the ability to do this on their, on their own. On the other hand, Sam Altman has said as much that, you know, he, he approached the government before, uh, going with Microsoft and saying, hey, can we get government funding to do this? Because, you hmm. know, we're concerned, we're concerned about AGI and we're not doing this to make a profit. In fact, we capped our profits and, um, and he got the cold shoulder, you know, maybe, maybe the government's attitude is changing now. But I think the core actors in the space, whether it's Sam Altman or Anthropic, um, you know, they they both have very big concerns about AI safety. And in some ways, they they are even more concerned about AI safety than experts outside of the companies. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so they, I think they have a willingness to cooperate. And if they were brought together in a, on a joint project and said, you know, feel free to commercialize stuff you already have willy nilly, you know, that's a huge gold mine um, you're going to make tons of money building the first ai lawyers the ai doctors and having some some first mover advantage there but as you move forward and start building these bigger models let's do this collaboratively uh, because this is not an, an area where we necessarily want to have um the sort of market comp competition arms race dynamic so flesh out your idea a little so the government would what it would take like 
the several most advanced players in this space and say, we want you to develop the next generation of models, but you want it, we want you to do it under these circumstances. Uh, you know, it, it, it's siloed. We will get, you know, so we know it won't leak the way Facebook's model did. Um, and uh, what's the incentive that the government gives them to participate? I guess there is. The government can just be coercive and say, you either do it this way or you don't do it. Is that the... Yes. So, I mean, they could they could use that option, and I wouldn't um, take it off the table. But just going off the statements of these the leaders of these companies, like they have stated that they would be open to doing something like this. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's, we can call their bluff. You know, it'd be, it'd be odd if they change their mind now. Um, but step one would be building publicly owned data centers. Um, because, um, you know, there is a potential scenario, a very near-term scenario, where uh, where transformative AI arrives, maybe not something that we consider super intelligence, but something that is can operationalize it by its impact on the economy that could mm -hmm. replace a substantial portion of, 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 of the workforce. Um, what that, what the critical infrastructure is there is these cloud computing companies, Microsoft, AWS, and, you know, you could see a bigger portion of the overall economy just become cloud services. And, um, and so I think it behooves the government to build out its own data centers, both for training models for within government needs, but then also as a hedge against sort of runaway corporate power, right? Because you know, Sam Altman seems to believe that he could, you know, if he had equity in open AI, he could easily be the first trillionaire, right? And, and they, they set a cap on their profits that's very generous because, because they, they believe that there's a possibility that they'll outstrip that cap 10 times over. It's, um, a, hundred, it's a factor of 100, right? Each investor can get 100 times their investment. Right. Which I would settle for personally. If they would like me <laughs> to send them a thousand dollar check, I'm I'm up for that. Right. So, but by, but 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 their own projections for the revealed preference, it, it it signals that you know they see when you build the everything app, you build the everything AI, something that's truly general. Uh, you end up concentrating economic resources in the hands of very few players, um, and that could displace governments. I think that's not an unlikely outcome. You create so, such powerful oligarchs that governments are powerless in their. In well, they're all contracting with them. <laughs> I mean, wait, who's contracting with whom? The the. Uh, well, Microsoft's the largest IT vendor in the U.S. government. Um, uh, you know, AWS and Microsoft provide the cloud computing services for the Department of Defense for, uh -huh. for really everything, um, and so you become completely beholden to. You know, he he who owns the compute, he who owns the GPU controls the, the universe. Uh, and so it'd be nice if we had some pub publicly owned GPUs. That's, that's step one. And can I interrupt you and say, in this scenario, does the government even go so far as to say that, like, the very latest generation of GPUs or dedicated a AI chips or whatever cannot be sold for the time being? They can only they can only be in our data center while we create the next generation of AIs and study them? Uh, it, they could do that. I don't think that's necessary. Um, you know, the Congress is already on a mission to do this chips industrial policy, right? We're, we're building out new fabs right. across, across the U.S., trying to reduce our reliance on Taiwan and build up our, our chip capacity. 
And historically, public procurement was a major tool in the toolkit for bootstrapping the chip sector. Mm-hmm. That's why Silicon Valley exists, really. And yeah. um, and so I think it, I think you could just say it would be complementary to our existing, you know, industrial policy for chips to say we're also going to make advanced orders of a lot of these chips. Okay. Um, but so they would, in effect, dominate usage of a, a new generation of chips for a while. The, go- the government would, would kind of own all or most of them. And so <laughs> for that reason alone, uh, the, cut- the cutting edge LLM work would be done in the silo. Um, I haven't thought too much about whether it matters that we're crowding okay. out the, the private sector. I, I think what the most important thing is that we have um, publicly owned infrastructure for, for, for training large models and that that infrastructure be used through a joint collaboration with these companies. Um, and par- par- partly because right now the, these large models are being trained on the cloud. And if, if, if Eliezer Yukowski has any validity to his concerns that they're, they're, there's some risk of them escaping, um, you'd much rather they be trained on facilities that are disconnected from the internet. Okay, that's a key feature of this. They're just not connected to the internet. Right, and I think part, part of it is also, you know, Paul Cristiano has um, outlined a little bit of this in his, in his work. Um, in, in, some, in some sense, we may want to do like gain-of-function style research on these models, not to, uh, you know, separate from the question of whether dangerous AI is sort of a, a, a telos that they'll, they'll follow inevitably, but like, we do know that as costs come down, people will train models to do weird things and dangerous things. And so we should be in these facilities in some ways, you know, building deceptive AIs, building AIs that um, uh, that represent the failure modes we're most worried about so we can understand how to deal with them. Okay. And then what are the fruits of temporarily, the government temporarily, as I understand it, kind of monopolizing and studying privately the late the latest generation of AIs. I mean, what do they what do they find or fix? What kinds of things do they discover or correct? Well, there's just this open question: um, What comes after GPT four? Um, mm-hmm. If you just pour more scale and compute at it, uh, we you know we have these sort of extrapolations, scaling laws that suggest that they uh, continue to improve. Um, we don't know for sure if there are emergent abilities that we haven't hit on yet. Um, and so that, that's that's the real worry that someone like Eliezer has, that there's going to be some tipping point where, you know, a tiny bit more scale uh, mm-hmm. puts you over the edge and suddenly you have the generality to go to the moon. Um, if there's anything like that, it would be useful to to know in advance of that becoming economical for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, now you can see people's concerns, right? About (laughs) the government. I mean, you come from, uh, as I said, you were previously associated with, a a, an institution for lapsed libertarians, but you can imagine the libertarian concern and, you know, I guess a legitimate concern about giving the government this much power. Well, I think there's concern about giving any single entity a lot of power. And mm-hmm. I think um, part of, you know, part of the sales pitch is that this is diversifying who has power. 
in, in reality that um you know on on a sort of status quo trajectory uh one of these companies could take a permanent lead um and end up monopolizing a lot of the economy so that that's a that's a valid concern and mm-hmm. um i think where the libertarians are most uh unhelpful right now is their conflation of uh and i don't put all the blame on libertarians it's also folks like gary marcus and some of the more um, ai skeptical people um they're conflating the dangers from uh near-term ai current ai with with these hypothetical future risks right and so like there are these set of risks like bias a hallucination um that do have some concerns associated with them but aren't going to kill us all and aren't going to yeah. destabilize society irreparably um and so i would i i sometimes talk, call myself a, a horizontal accelerationist and a vertical decelerationist so Whoa. the accelerationist in that. the ai <laughs> the accelerationists are people who just want to hit the gas pedal and go faster um and i i worry about doing that along the vertical dimension of bigger, stronger models that have new capabilities that we haven't yet uh, discovered. Uh, on the horizontal dimension, I'm much less concerned about uh, slowing down. I think, if, if, if anything, I'd like us to speed up because I, I do well, think one of the civilizational... Just, just kind of playing out the implications of the model we already have. In other words, you, you create an API and you let the free market go wild and build what yeah. it can on, on GPT-4. That's horizontal escalation. Exactly. Um, you know, I want more. I want AI doctors. I want AI lawyers. I want AI tutors. I want, you know, I want these things to be productized and not face resistance from the American Medical Association and the bar societies and and so on down the line. Because there will be a huge amount of resistance. Um, you know, we're already the the writer strike is a is an example of this already, and um, and and. You know, one of the potential sort of non-existential but still really bad failure modes from AI is that it, it is so destabilizing in part because our institutions, um, our legacy institutions fail to keep up. That there's a, a huge increase in the kind of throughput demanded on their institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, take, take the um, do not pay company, which is building this uh, set of tools for you know one-click lawsuits. Um, and you know our courts aren't, Set up to handle a lot of a lot of lawsuits, right? Um, um, there, you know, ninety nine percent of cases settle. There's a huge long tail of cases that could be brought but never get brought because of the cost. And if everyone has a decent AI lawyer in their pocket and just can hit a button to file a motion or whatever, you know, our, our court system is going to get uh, jammed up. That's just one example. And you know, my, my, my concerns from this come from actually a weird place from Charles Murray of all people, mm. because Charles Murray had this book in 2014, I think called we, the people, and it was his proposal to have a libertarian legal defense fund, um, that would basically break the system. <laughs> he, he was concerned about like the, the, uh, local bylaw officer coming by and telling them that his grass wasn't cut high, was cut too, too low, or that his fence was too high. And so his solution to that was sort of mass civil disobedience through jamming the courts, right? Um, th- I don't think his proposal ever went anywhere. I, I thought I always thought it was a very antisocial strategy because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you don't necessarily get better government out of that. You just sort of break the system. Um, but I think across a lot of different different vectors, AI will be doing that by default. That you know, 
another example I sometimes have talked about is the regulatory comment process on new regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, when an agency puts out a new regulation, they're supposed to elicit feedback from the public. Normally it's lobbyists and industry associations. But if, if anyone can, with the click of a button, write completely novel, unique, insightful comments, and the agency under the law has to read and respond to all those comments, you suddenly have this like bandwidth issue where our legacy rules are not set up to deal with the influx of demand. Um, and so that's why I think accelerating the adoption of current level AI may be actually important from a safety perspective, because it's going to be how we sort of fight AI fire with AI fire by keeping pace with the uh, new and unprecedented amount of throughput. Yeah, but, so you could well, imagine you may, maybe we could have AI judges. <laughs> I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, but but um, you know when the internet was when the internet took off, um, the DMCA, the D- Digital Millennial Co- Millennium Copyright Act, uh, laid the groundwork for how we deal with copyright on the internet, right. right? Because otherwise the courts would have been overwhelmed. And so I think we need sort of similar kind of mechanisms to deal with the tsunami of, of information that's coming. Okay, so listen, we've been talking about an hour, and uh, one thing I do pretty often on the podcast these days is do the usual hour-long conversation, more or less, in public, then continue the conversation uh, and make the remaining part, the overtime part, available to uh, paid subscribers of the uh, Non-Zero Newsletter. Um, And you've been kind enough to agree to stick around uh, for... That part of the conversation, um, people can uh, subscribe by, well, just Googling non-zero substack, my name. Uh, there's also a link in the, in the show notes if you're on a, a podcast app. And then once, you, once you're a paid subscriber, you, you, you can get a special podcast feed uh, that'll automatically give you access to all the overtimes. Um, and, but, but before we go into overtime... Uh, well, I want to thank everybody who's uh, listened this long and may or may not may not come along with us for the rest. Um, but I also want to give you a chance to say anything you would want to say uh, just um, that you think you've left unsaid. I mean, I want to, once we move into overtime, I want to, among other things, challenge you a little on the horizontal accelerationism and then talk about some other things, possibly sure. including Wittgenstein. Um, but first, <laughs> is there anything you want to you want to add uh, to what you've already said? Um, just to underscore uh, an earlier point that you made, actually, about um, the, the these kind of mezzanine risks, the things that don't kill us all, but could still be really bad. Um, I, I see this huge sort of blind spot right now in, in the discourse where all these sort of sub existential risks are just being completely neglected because everyone is sort of chasing the shiny object of the, uh, the sci-fi scenario. And if you look back at the internet, um, you know, circa 1999, people weren't having internet safety debates, but if they were, they would have been talking about cyberbullying or, um, internet crime, stealing your credit card or something like that. Um, you know, those were all real risks, but the real internet safety debate sort of in retrospect was, Oh, it led to the Arab spring. And, it destabilized, uh, it delegitimized Western democracies. And it, it's led mm-hmm. to like this sort of Martin Gurry effect of mass mobilization and constant, um, you know, la- loss of authority in our governing institutions. Like that was totally something that no one foresaw. Right. Right. 
And insofar as AI is just the continuation of, of the digital revolution writ large, I think we should expect to see those trends continue. Um, and that could be very disconcerting because our institutions to date have really, instead of really updating to the internet, they've tried to put it, put it back in the box, right? Instead of like recognizing that old media and journalism need to be turned over, they're trying to, you know, have disinformation boards and stuff like that. I worry that our response to AI may be similar and that we try to keep it in a box. Um, and in so doing, we our institutions fail to adapt. Um, and we lead, we sort of continue this crisis of authority that the internet had, had, had brought. Um, and things just get very destabilized and we, we lose the ability to solve collective action problems. Okay. Uh, th this leads very naturally <laughs> into what the, the challenge I was going to pose to your pro horizontal accelerationist position. Um, so thanks again. Well, to you for this first hour conversation and everybody else. And uh, we will see them next time and some of them in overtime.